Welcome to The Age of Trust, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon that explores how we are securing our future for the fourth industrial revolution, with knowledge becoming critical to Australia's international economic strength. This podcast series explores themes that challenge the productivity of knowledge workers with secure and reliable communications. We discover the explosion in remote working and connectivity and how organizations will need to manage, secure, protect and organize intangible assets such as systems, processes, IP, data, personal information, corporate information and even competitive knowledge. Get ready for the new age of trust by Verizon. Welcome to the Age of Trust podcast. Today, we're talking with Nathan Strong, who's the General Manager of Public Sector at Verizon Business Group based in Canberra. We're also speaking with Michael Masterson. Michael is the Managing Director of a company called EverEdge Global. The topic of today is about how both business and government can understand what are the assets that they own or care for and how do they protect them? What are the processes around identifying what an intangible asset might look like and what are the security measures to put in place to make sure that they are protected in line with the value that they hold to the organisation? And how does this translate across to government? Nathan and Michael, thank you for joining us today for this conversation. I might start off, Nathan, just by asking you, what does your day look like? You're down in Canberra. A bit about your role and apart from being down in Canberra where it's cold but COVID-free at the moment, what does your day look like and the way that you work with your customers and partners? That's probably a good description. Uh, thanks, Corey. Cold but COVID-free. We are all, like the rest of the country, a bit cautious at the moment in our working environment. So we're... Um, most of government is, if they're essential, they're at the office, but uh, otherwise trying to be at home, like all the supporting industry as well. So I spend a lot of my days at the moment collaborating either internally or with our customers or partners online, different collaboration technologies. I think in any given day, there's maybe three to five different you know, WebEx, Zoom variants through the day. So enjoying the, the variants in those capabilities. But just interacting, trying to still service our customers through this difficult period, it's challenging for them and particularly working with government, it's challenging for them to still meet the expectations of a federal government in these conditions. You know, it's definitely changed from what it normally looks like. So we're responding in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways that we've never thought would be necessary, having to adapt to that requirement. So it's been fun, but lots of WebEx, very rarely meeting in person at the moment. It's always online. So, yeah, definitely a challenge. And, Michael, you're in Sydney, much the same, I'd expect. Yeah, it's a little bit warmer than Canberra, which is good news. But, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I was in town earlier today. It's a bit like a ghost town. So I think everyone's starting to feel that this is starting to become a bit of a new normal. And certainly we're seeing that in our clients. I noticed in the, the lead up to this particular episode, I've mentioned the phrase intangible asset management a few times and people seem to go, huh? can you talk us through it? And then I guess we'll get to why is this important in the conversation right now in the context of cyber or security or protecting those intangible assets? Yeah, I think part of it, Corey, probably maybe comes back to maybe who you asked about that. Because certainly if you talk to finance people, they typically see it as the asset being written down over time on the balance sheet. 
We define intangible assets quite differently. So anything that is a non-physical asset, an asset by its definition can generate value and revenue and be worth something to someone else. So it's anything that's non-physical. In other words, you can't kick it with your toe, as opposed to traditional tangible assets where you can kick them with your toe. And why is this stuff important? Well, 1975, they weren't that important. So if you look at the S&P 500 as one of the examples we use, 1975, 82% of the value was made up of tangible assets. The remainder, essentially goodwill, wasn't a big enough number for anyone to worry about. A couple of things happened in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Remember, this is a US example, and this has got some really good learnings for Australia. The first is that you saw American companies offshoring their balance sheets. So they sent the tangibles the plant, the equipment, the machinery, the ability to make products over to predominantly China. And what you start to see is that yesterday's supplier is now today's competitor. E.g. Huawei didn't just wake up one morning and go, hey, we know how to do 5G. They got taught by Nokia, Ericsson, AT&T, Bell Labs, a whole bunch of others. And that's why you now see them competing. And that's because the American companies didn't just send over the what, they also sent over the how. And the how has now been shown to be often a lot more valuable than the what. And this is something that the US has certainly started to address by trying to onshore manufacturing back to the US. And that's because intangible assets now account for over 90% of the value of the S&P 500. In fact, the world's five biggest companies, 95% of their value is held in intangible assets. And if you want to work it out, it's really easy for public companies. You take their market cap, less their fixed assets, their debt and their cash. The other thing left is intangibles. So depending on who you're talking to, different people describe these as different things. But ultimately, it's your ability to be able to generate a return for your investors by making above comparative margin and or market share. So in other words, how you win on the battlefield. So if you're a lawyer, they'll typically call it IP. But they're only talking about registered IP, typically patents and trademarks. If you go and talk to Warren Buffett in his documentary series, which is fantastic, he calls it competitive moats. You talk to manufacturers and you say, well, do you guys have any IP or intangible assets? To your earlier point, no, we don't. What about secret source? Oh, yeah, look, we've got loads of secret source. So they're all essentially describing the same thing. It's how are you going to maintain a competitive advantage or edge, however you want to describe it, over your competitors so that you can generate margin and or market share that they can't. I think this is good to bring that description back to, and and Nathan, I'm really keen for your thoughts on the concept of zero trust and how it's important when we're talking about the way that we define what value looks like these days like zero trust is a funny one because on one hand it can get passed away as kind of a marketing term but on the other hand it's actually really important in the way we shift our thinking around what and how we're protecting what the philosophy is that we use that term keen for your thoughts there yeah i think the concept of zero trust is you're right there's a lot of marketing and it probably means a lot of different things to a lot of different people I think the the one thing that is good about the concept of zero trust is in the title itself. So fundamentally, from scratch, we start with we are not trusting whatever we are trying to collaborate with or who. We are trying to refine what we can provide out to the smallest minimum capability. And that comes down to what you identify those assets as being. So to Michael's point there, once you understand what you've defined as your intangible assets or your secret source or whatever you define that is, then you can think about purposefully identifying what that data is and purposefully is really important. And then you can work with what you have and how to define a policy around that. 
and whether that's zero trust technologies, whether that's other means of securing or looking after that data, or also investing in what you do with that information. So bolstering that capability, making it larger, making more special source or more competitive advantage, if you like. The good thing is, and working with government quite a lot, the concept of zero trust is really starting to hit home with them. What many people wouldn't realise with government, they take their brand very seriously and people don't see them as a company, but they do. They take it very seriously and they treat your data seriously as well. And they take that reputational risk and the political risk of uh, exposure to all of those things very seriously. But they also have a problem in identifying what their intangible data is and how to value that in a world where competitive advantage isn't the driver. So there's some really interesting ways of looking through a different lens. Government looks different to commercial. Commercial, very much driven by competitive advantage, the bottom line and those sorts of things, has different drivers. Government, it's all about that brand, that image, the political exposure, the data, the risk of data theft is very high on their agenda. And you're right, Zero Trust has a part to play in that. And I think the way that governments worked around the need-to-know principles to start with They've had that concept in the back of their head for a long time and potentially not had the capabilities or tools to implement that and the thinking starting to change around that, which is really good. Michael, do you see a shift in thinking? I know that this has been something we've spoken about over a number of years. Is the penny starting to drop amongst the broader number of companies? Just as an example, I saw a a half-year ASX report a few months ago and there was a big chunk of it that was dedicated to intangible assets, which I thought was, hadn't seen that before. Is that, is it shifting? I'm now wondering if that's one of our clients, because it might be. Um, <laughs> I think it's typically what we find, and I completely agree with Nathan, what government is really, really good at is classification of information. They are much better than the private sector. You know, we're running at a pace, because government runs typically a little bit slower. Often a lot of, in particular, depending on which stage of business you're looking at, like startups are, you know, just worried about survival, scale-ups are just running, trying to hire as fast as possible and grow. So typically what happens in our experience is that most people don't take this stuff seriously until something's gone wrong. And I think that's probably true of government as well. That's because not only do they not typically understand what those assets are, and Nathan's talked about one really key asset, and it's a really powerful asset, which is data. But as Corey, you might recall, you know, a lot of people don't often understand what data really is. Data is more like dirt than it is like gold or like oil. What you've got to do with data is find a use case. And data, for the most part, often has very little to no value, except to the person who might have that data. Now, certain data can have a lot of value to someone outside of the person who might own it. And that's where it becomes obviously a target for someone to want to steal that data. But that data can take many forms. I mean, the data, and this is where we typically talk about digital assets rather than data, because I think a lot of people get caught up. But, you know, data can mean lots of things. It can be binary data, metadata, big data, you know, which data are you talking about? So it's sort of become this kind of grabble term. And like most things, you've got to actually define what am I talking about and what context am I talking about so that I can start to appreciate how it becomes excuse the pun, but tangible to me, because otherwise it's just a bit intangible. It's just this, you know, it's the vibe you're on. But again, most of the value we see sitting in businesses outside of the data is their confidential information, their systems, their processes, could be their pricing information, it could be the strategy. 
And they're typically often kept as digital assets. And that's one of the things we try to work with clients is to get them to help them understand what those digital assets are. Because once you know what the assets are, then you can work out what the risks are. Can I, this is just an example that sort of popped into my head today and it's probably building on one that I'm sure we talked about previously. Karen Andrews, Minister for Innovation and Science, announced this morning or perhaps over the weekend about that there's been a whole raft of ventilators that have been produced locally that have now managed the market. Now, that was the response or the product, I guess, of a response of swarming in on Australian sovereign capability when it came to healthcare. We know that there's a global race for a vaccine and we hear the word sovereignty a lot more than we did six months ago. What are we capable of? How are our industries able to transition to meet the challenges of the day? Now, all of those companies that have been sort of brought together to produce those ventilators in response to working with the government would be dealing with huge amounts of IP that they may not know that they have that needs to be mobilised and protected and stay within the companies that own it and have developed it. It's like we have a much clearer idea of what we're actually talking about at the moment. Has sovereignty changed the conversation in the way that we're starting to understand what we actually own, what we protect? Yeah, look, it absolutely has. And one of the sayings that Nathan used before is one of our favourites, which is need to know. And if people don't need to know, then you don't tell them. It really comes down to that. I think it's probably uh, the first thing you learn when you join one of the security services. Sovereignty has become quite critical. As the example I gave at the start about China realising the value of not the what, but the how. And I remember seeing about four years ago when China's GDP dropped below 12% for the first time. And it was on a show called Amanpour and Kevin Rudd was the guest interviewer. He was no longer PM at that point. And he said to the Deputy Finance Minister, you know, are you worried about this? He said, well, no, we've announced that we're moving from a manufacturing economy to an innovation economy. In other words, they were moving from a tangible to an intangible economy. And so sovereignty has become really key. We've seen Singapore, who we work very closely with the Singapore government, announce they want to become the lead intangible asset economy on the planet. And that's because the ability to know how to produce is what enables you to generate above normal margin indoor market share. In other words, you get a better rate of return on your investment. And so Australia, I think, is still fairly slow to this. There was some good initial work done a couple of PMs ago, I've lost count, where we talked about that we needed to become an innovation economy, but innovation by and of itself is not going to fix the problem. We've got to work out how we're going to make money from our ideas. And you can't make money from your idea unless you can protect it. And this is the bit that we see missed in VC, PE, most investment. There is no due diligence done on the strength of the intangible assets. And a strong intangible asset will enable you to gain market share. Market share is a proxy for your profit, which is ultimately a proxy for your return on your investment. And unfortunately, Australia and New Zealand have had books written about them, the number of ideas that we've created that have never made money. And you know, the ventilators is something we know a little bit about, but you know, that was a culmination of taking some offshore intangible assets and then bringing them over to Australia and then manufacturing them locally. But Australia needs to focus on manufacturing, not just in terms of assembly, but in terms of design products and creating products that the rest of the world wants, because that creates an export market for us that's really key. Nathan, I realise that when we're talking about intangible assets, the language is probably better suited to the private sector. And of course, your sort of area is in the public sector. In terms of things moving so quickly in the last three or four months, and going back to that example of ventilators and other initiatives, what are the other kind of features of what's happening with government at the moment? I know, obviously, Scott Morrison's press conference, a lot of attention, and it really sort of sharpened the focus. What's the feeling in terms of 
capability, the shift in the way the government's interacting with citizens, just as a, a snapshot to what we're seeing from a government perspective. Yeah, thanks, Corey. I think that's a really good question. And one of the things I will say that government and the public sector and their supporting organisations are good at is, is running to a crisis. You know, if there's a natural disaster, or in this case, a pandemic or whatever, the organisations will step up to that and people will really put their capes on to get things done. It's just simple things that people take for granted, like making payments happen when the government makes a policy decision to make those payments. Making those payments happen on the ground is quite difficult and the government's great at responding to those sorts of things. That They're big, clunky organisations, public sector-driven organisations and things normally so sometimes turning that big ship is quite difficult, but you'll see that they actually respond really well to a crisis. What I'm seeing is all the organisations that I work with and have, have worked with in the past are, are still managing to respond despite quite a wall of things against them in this scenario, doing a pretty good job in responding to what the government of the day, whether it's state or federal is asking them to do. So I think credit where credit's due, they're doing a good job to standing up to those sorts of things. And it, it can change on a dime. Scott Morrison can get up and say something and the public service has to react instantly. And it's and it's actually a big effort and it's hard to do. And I think they do a pretty good job. One thing I'll just pick up on that sovereignty thing you talked about previously. And one of the things that government actually works with all the time is that whole supply chain and even in a defence scenario, you know, that you've got this big supply chain, you've got a lot of sovereign capability that you need to maintain and that whole need to know, zero trust throughout the supply chain is really important and that's something commercial organisations should really always be looking at as well is you're only as strong as your weakest link in this supply chain, right? So zero trust is really important in that supply chain. And Verizon is actually doing some really interesting things with a couple of products, cyber risk management being one of them, CRM, where we not only can look at your risk posture in a few different stages from a public profile for your commercial organisation, but can also look at your suppliers and maintain that dashboard for you on the risk to your suppliers. And that's really important. That's the way that you appear on the dark web and, you know, all of the places that are publicly exposed, how your organisation is exposed into those environments. And that can give you really good visibility into the strengths and weaknesses of your supply chain. And I think when you're talking about intangible assets and, and data and all sorts of things and, and your exposure, that sort of a view is really, really important and, and great from the technical level to the board level to have that sort of exposure to what's happening, how your organisation is actually appearing publicly is really important. But from a private point of view, you can be looking at your supply chain and going, I have a weak link or I have multiple weak links here from my exposure. And that's risk and you can resolve all of those things. But I think it's really good to have that capability. And the way that we're moving now into all of these technical capabilities that are coming online, you know, with the volume of AI and, and machine learning capabilities that can look at your organisation, look at your data and, and those sorts of things in different ways is actually, we haven't really even got to the total value of what these things can provide to us. But in also exposing that value, we're exposing risk and we need to have a look at those things. So I think that CRM tool is something that we've brought together recently, which is actually really cool. I think it will really help commercial and public sector organisations. I'm just going to clarify, Nathan, because when you're talking CRM, you're not talking about customer relationship management. Cyber, <laughs> yeah, cyber risk management. So Verizon cyber risk management. Yeah, so 
get onto Verizon and uh, have a look at that one. It's, uh, it's really good. So we're talking to a lot of public sector organizations and a lot of private sector organizations about it. Very good in, in a number of different levels. Like I said, from right up in your board level conversations down to your technical people who need to fix the problems. I think, Michael, I'll come to you in a second, but I think that's one area where government and the private sector share a lot of similarities. When you've got M&A activity in the private sector and you've quite a great new company that comes with some baggage per se that you haven't noticed or any of that kind of machinery of government change that might happen quite quickly in government, like suddenly all of a sudden your threat profile will be changing constantly or your, your risk profile rather. So you can see there's lots of similarities in how having that visibility is really important in the way that both our public and private sector change. So talking about risk profiles, Michael, do you see that with some of the companies that you work with that are often like maybe acquiring or merging with companies and then they start that whole audit activity all over again in terms of what it is that they actually own? Yeah, and I think we sort of break it down to, to three areas. And Nathan's touched on a couple, which I think is definitely worth exploring. The one that everyone's familiar with is, is sort of the external threat, the unknowns, the hackers that are often trying to do damage from a reputation point of view, as Nathan talked about, to the brand. They're trying to create that disruption. And we've certainly seen bad actors attacking particular governments or trying to disrupt election processes, interfere politically, and and that's trying to create that distrust. But it can also go into things like industrial espionage. And industrial espionage is unfortunately probably not the tip of the iceberg, it's the iceberg below the water. Because quite often you don't even know that something's been stolen until you see it show up on a product or shelf or as a web offering, as a service. So that's kind of the first, which is the external threat. Then you've got the external threat, which is the knowns. So this can come from things like, you know, people like contractors, suppliers, partners, and this absolutely plays to Nathan's point that you are absolutely only as strong as your weakest link. And a lot of companies look what's going on outside, but they often forget that sometimes it can be an internal threat. We've had, unfortunately, a number of situations where we've had to work with the security agencies to identify who those potential people are. And often it's an external advisor, someone like that who's been compromised. Then your third area is your internal threats, which is the well-knowns. And this is employees and people like directors. We've had situations where employees have either been compromised either knowingly or unknowingly, and then that can go all the way up to the board level where we've had situations where directors have inadvertently been giving information to competitors because they didn't realise that it was a valuable, excuse me, intangible asset of the organisation. So the first thing you've got to do is, again, there's kind of three sides of this story. And unfortunately, cyber really, or cyber being network security, is often only dealing with the external unknowns. It doesn't look at the external threat of the knowns and it certainly doesn't often look at the internal. So again, it's about defining where do we see our risks and which angle of attack are they going to come from. And then working with folks like Nathan at Verizon and others on, first of all, working out what the asset is because people are always going after assets. So once you know what the asset is, then it often becomes abundantly clear who's probably going to be the one that will want to take that asset. Talking about that kind of complexity in terms of the risk profile, a few years ago there was a lot of discussion about cyber insurance. Where is cyber insurance at? This might be more a question for Michael, but I don't seem to hear the words as much as I used to. No, and look, if I'm talking to a board or investors, it's pretty much non-existent. What cyber insurance is really designed to, if we use the analogy of a house, So you go and get insurance for your house. The equivalent of cyber insurance in our experience, there might be some exceptions to this that we haven't come across, but traditional cyber insurance is providing an insurance policy for the alarm system. 
So if your alarm system gets tripped, it pays someone to come along, reset the alarm, often work out why the alarm got tripped. If the bad guys are in the house, they'll try and get the bad guys out, but it doesn't fix the front door if they kick that in. And it certainly doesn't replace the value of the jewels that might be hidden inside the sock drawer. And the reason for that is that, again, to use the house analogy, and we use the, the diamond ring, but you know, if your partner has, for example, a diamond ring, the only way you can get that on your contents insurance is you've got to take that to someone independent. They'll give you a valuation. You take that valuation back, and typically the insurance company will charge you 2 to maybe 3% of the value as the premium. So if you've got a $100,000 diamond ring, you will pay 2 to 3% in premium for that. Now, we often come across situations where we might be dealing with a $100 million company and they tell us that they've just paid $13,000 for their cyber policy. So if the assets are worth $100 million, they're not paying a proportionate amount to protect those assets. And unfortunately, I was in a webinar on Friday with a couple of insurance people and they said, look, yeah, we don't actually provide policies about the assets. We're essentially protecting the alarm system. And I think insurance has certainly got a, a long way to come up and part of the difficulty is that the insurance companies don't know how to value these assets. We've got a semiconductor manufacturer in Taiwan that their main asset is a key trade secret and we can't get an insurance policy for that particular trade secret. Nathan, just given, I think we talked about Scott Morrison, Minister Dominello in New South Wales, we're seeing a big shift or investment and so acknowledgement of what the future looks like when it comes to bolstering cyber capability, what skills looks like, where that investment comes from, because that's obviously a New South Wales example there are other federal government initiatives, but how important that skills pipeline bolstering our capability in Australia. Have you really noticed a shift in that conversation and, and the focus and importance? Not yet, because I don't think there was a lot of context uh, and content behind some of those federal announcements in particular, but it's great to see that they are investing in this space because I think it's a um, it's a big gap. We, we definitely identified a, a skills shortage in cybersecurity in particular. I think people will respond to that with the amount of money getting pushed into this side of the sector. So I think you'll probably see a lot more focus on bringing those skills through, whether it's through tertiary institutions or whether it's through graduate programs, all sorts of different things to try and bolster specific cyber skills. I think one of the problems that we've got is we've relied heavily on a, um, a contractor base and a position where a few highly trained experts in cyber really carry a lot of those that don't have a lot of skills. And I think bringing up the baseline for a lot more IT people to be cyber people naturally in the baseline of their capability, I think will be important moving forward. I think the announcements for cyber and particularly in a government context, even more so in a defence context, they've announced, you know, obviously there's a cyber service arm now of the Defence Force. So they have not only a defensive but offensive capability in cyber. Lots of interesting moves in that space, lots of movement into protecting government in different ways, the ACSC and uh, the Cybersecurity Centre and also uh, other government organisations are really looking at bolstering the protective measures for government but also all of Australian interests. So that's also in their scope. So that's not only critical infrastructure, government assets, but it's also business, so key business, banking sector, those sorts of things, working in partnership, there will be a lot of money put into this space over the next couple of decades to ensure that we're secure, that we have the right people in place, we've got the right capabilities and the right policies are set from the top down. 
I think it's exciting. It's an exciting space to be. There's a lot always to do. It's always changing. One of the things I'd like to quickly bring up on Michael's point before was there's a lot of focus on risk at the moment and not a lot of focus on opportunity for these intangible assets. So I think if you're covering off the risk side, you can be very focused on that and very focused in securing everything. But there's also a lot of potential for this intangible asset field if you identify what it is that you have and you take advantage of that. So all of the new opportunities, like I said, technology opportunities to to really get the best value out of those intangible assets, whether that's your data, competitive data, publicly available data or otherwise, I think the opportunity is as great as the risk. And I think we need to weigh those things up against each other to make sure that people don't put all their money in the risk basket and focus on putting their arms around something and don't also take advantage of the opportunity that they have to leverage the intangible assets that they have. You know, it's always a risk. We can spend a million dollars on cybersecurity, but then also not invest in growing the company or making the organization better because we spent the million dollars all on cybersecurity. So there's positive side to all of this, not just protecting ourselves. I think taking advantage of once you've identified what those intangible assets are, I think Michael will probably attest to there's a lot of a lot of potential there in that side of the, the discussion. Yeah, Nathan, if you weren't in Canberra and we weren't social distancing, I'd give you a man hug right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nathan, that's a brilliant summary. Final word, Michael, a lot of optimism there. We talk about protecting and holding on to. What's the next six to 12 months look like from where you're sitting? Where's some of the brighter spots looking? I think this is a real opportunity. I think we've just had a big wake-up call that we do have a really strong manufacturing sector in Australia. I mean, manufacturing is one of the, the largest employers in Australia. And again, I'm not talking about assembly. I'm talking about true manufacturing, making products that other people want and are prepared to pay a premium for it because they can't make a lower cost alternative around it. And I think not just for the companies, but for the investors is to start asking the right questions around supply chain and what are the assets of the company? You know, where is the 90% of value that's not on the balance sheet, it's not on the fixed asset register? Because to Nathan's point, you know, risk is the first thing that you can deal with because it's often pretty easy to deal with. But it really comes back to value because that's how you generate that return on investment. And if Australia wants to keep playing with the big guys and not just become the next China in terms of a low-cost manufacturer, we have to start protecting what we've got because once you protect it, then you can make money from it. Actually, I'm pretty positive about Australia. I have to be because I live here. And I think we've got a great place to play in the world because we are a truly innovative culture. But there's no point coming out with the world's best idea unless you can make really good money from it. There you go. Commercialisation of technology and IP opens up a whole other area for discussion and I hope we get to have that soon. I'd just like to draw this conversation to a close and Michael Masterson from EverEdge Global, Nathan Strong, Verizon Business Group, thanks to both of you for a great discussion today. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. We hope you enjoyed this special Verizon Age of Trust podcast. For more, keep tuning in to Innovation Oz podcast or go to verizon.com 